0: Paramedic 43, District 1, Engine 51, response, cardiac arrest. Hello everyone, welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick. Today we're going to have another entry into our summer series. And I'm going to be talking to y'all today about heat-related emergencies, it's that time here in Texas the thermometers are getting ready to to bust wide open and 95 degree 90 percent humidity five-month period that we call the wonderful summer here in southeast Texas is on its way and so we thought it was a good time to talk about heat related illness and heat injuries because now's the time of year for for us to be seeing these folks like always i think we need to start with just some basic definitions so we're all on the same page when we talk about this, and this is one where I think the definitions can be a bit gray. So I think it's really important in heat emergencies, heat illness to really define what it is we're talking about. First off, just to get it out there, normal core body temperatures, 98.6. And if you're like me, you can never convert from Fahrenheit to Celsius, but normal body temp in Celsius is 37. So there's going to be a couple important numbers for us to remember, not to make this too complicated. 37 normal for us to have... Heat stroke, need to be above 40 for the most part. Again, that's not 100% hard and fast, but when we think about heat stroke, we're generally greater than 40. So between 37 and 40, we're going to be at a different definition, and that's going to be heat exhaustion. Before we even get to heat exhaustion, though, there's heat stress or heat symptoms that can occur in normal temperature patients, and we all really know what those are. We've had them before in ourselves, most, most of these outside in the heat exercising, yard work, and those are heat cramps. And again, most of the time heat cramps are thought of to be due to electrolyte fluctuations. Heat edema, you've all been outside mowing, come back in, take your socks and shoes off, and you've got a nice puffy ankle ring there where your your sock line was. And prickly heat is another heat stress type symptom that occurs when our sweat glands are blocked uh, during exposure to heat. Think of this as a progression. So when we progress from heat stress to heat exhaustion, we can have all of those heat stress symptoms, edema, cramps, prickly heat, but then our temperature starts to rise. So most of the time, heat exhaustion is going to exhibit temperature elevation. So we're going to be somewhere in between that 37 and 40 degrees Celsius range with the addition of syncope, nausea and vomiting and weakness, oftentimes really thirsty, and that's going to be from water and or salt depletion. So when we think of symptomatic patients with temperature elevation less than 40 who are awake and alert, then we've moved from heat stress to heat exhaustion. But again, it's important to remember that heat exhaustion patients are not confused. They don't have tissue damage. And for the most part, they're still going to be sweating. Once we make the next step, that's when we get into the range of really what we're all concerned about and sort of the danger zone, and that's going to be our heat stroke patients. Like I said before, these folks are going to most of the time have a temperature greater than 104 or 40 degrees Celsius, and the hallmark of heat stroke is altered mental status. When you look at textbook definitions and textbook descriptions of heat stroke, classically, heat stroke is as described in two parts, either exertional or non-exertional. Exertional is what it says. It's going to be your athletes, military, strenuous activity, high temperature environment, as opposed to the non-exertional or classic heat stroke. And that's going to be in elderly folks, typically poorer health. And those patients have no mechanism to release the heat, whereas the athletes are healthy. They They can release and cool themselves. They just overwhelm that mechanism couple differences that we see in these two types of patients, exertional heat stroke patients are going to have more DIC, they're going to have more hyperkalemia, they're going to have more rhabdomyolysis, as opposed to non-exertional or classic heat stroke, elderly, chronically ill patients. They're going to have a higher mortality, and oftentimes they're going to be sicker to start. One thing to remember in any heat stroke patient, we just had the Ironman here in the Southeast Texas, down in the woodlands. One of the things, if you've ever picked up a patient who's an exertional heat stroke and you touch them, most of the time, their skin is going to be cool. And that's because they're peripherally vasoconstricted and clamped down. So it's really important to remember in these folks that we're looking for that 104 Fahrenheit, 40 degree Celsius mark, but core temperature measurement in these patients is going to be very important because you're. Peripheral temps, whether you've got a temporal, uh, ear thermometer, even oral, uh, can be quite inaccurate when they're significantly peripherally vasoconstricted. So, again, how does this occur? We talked about it just briefly, but it's in situations where heat production is greater than heat loss. And again, in a classic heat stroke patient, that's going to be an elderly person who has no ability to cool themselves, or in an exertional heat stroke patient where the environment and the exertional aspect overwhelms all of our cooling mechanisms. Why do we care whether we're dealing with a classic heat stroke versus an exertional heat stroke? Again, like we talked about before, some of the complications are going to vary, and our treatment approach can vary in in these two groups of patients. History is going to be our key. Think about in the elderly patient that's chronically ill, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, on multiple antihypertensive medications, diuretics, even Synthroid, all of, all of these things are going to affect their vascular tone and are going to affect their ability to cool themselves. So this puts them at high risk for classic heat stroke. The exertional heat stroke is going to be a little, little more obvious, right? That's going to be the patient that collapse, collapses during strenuous activity. And most of the time, the history is going to lead you directly, directly to your diagnosis here. But remember that when we're talking about exertional heat stroke, it doesn't have to be 105 degrees, right? That's, that's your production greater than your cooling. So your heat production is greater than your ability to cool. And it can be, you know, especially if it's very humid, uh, it doesn't have to be 110 for us to have exertional heat stroke, especially in situations like the Ironman, which we just, you know, an ultra marathon, ultra endurance events. We just had the North American uh, Ironman championships here in Montgomery County. And when you're out running a marathon and 112 mile bike ride and swimming to two miles, It doesn't have to be 110 for you to to suffer exertional heat stroke. One of the things to remember, too, is consider other diagnoses in these patients that are altered. We want to make sure that we keep our differential broad. Things like drug use, sympathomimetics, cocaine, methamphetamines, um, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, malignant hyperthermia, serotonin syndrome, sepsis, all these things can mimic heat stroke. And we'll talk a little bit as we move on how to differentiate between those things. So the first place we're going to start is with our, with our vital signs, as always. So both types of heat stroke can really mimic SIRS, sepsis, and septic shock. If you think about it, patients are going to be tachycardic. They can be hypotensive. They can be febrile. They can be altered. So our history is going to be key in these folks. Core temp, really, again, to reiterate, is going to be key, especially in the heat stroke patient because they're going to be peripherally vasoconstricted. Look for compartment syndrome. In exertional heat stroke, again, rhabdomyolysis is much more common in exertional heat stroke as opposed to classic heat stroke. And then the key component is going to be mentation, right? If a patient's alert and oriented and their temp's 105, it's not a heat stroke. Heat stroke requires altered mental status to be diagnosed. If you notice jaundice in a heat stroke patient, that's a very poor prognostic indicator. So if you see scleral icterus, yellow eyes, know that patient is a super sick and their prognosis is pretty darn poor. So we need to be extra cautious in those patients. One of the things I'm often asked about when we talk about heat stroke and and teaching heat stroke is, are they sweating? Are they not sweating? Does that matter? And the dogma is, is that classic elderly, chronically ill heat stroke patients are dry and exertional heat stroke patients are sweating. Again, this doesn't hold true for either group hundred percent of the time, but that's what you'll, that's what you, that's what you'll see in the classic textbook setting. One of the things I think that's most important on exam is that in a heat stroke patient, they will be flaccid. So in other words, they are not going to be stiff, rigid. They will You'll be able to pick their arms up and it'll be limp as a noodle. Their legs will be limp as noodles. If you have rigidity, if you have stiff muscles, then we need to change our direction and really open up that differential and think about things like serotonin syndrome, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, and malignant hyperthermia. And just for a quick review, what are we what will we look for in those patients? Again, in a serotonin syndrome patient, you want to look for multiple psych meds on their bed list or the introduction of new psychiatric meds, specifically the SSRIs, the antidepressant, anti-anxiety medications. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome is going to be patients that are on typically antipsychotics and malignant hyperthermia is going to occur most of the time with general anesthesia. So those are a couple other diagnoses that are we need to think about when we think about heat illness but there are many more. It's not just serotonin syndrome, uh, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, and malignant hyperthermia. We need to think about meningitis and encephalitis, thyroid storm, uh, anticholinergic toxicity can oftentimes look a lot like heat stroke because those patients can, can be febrile. They can be confused. The way that you catch the difference there is anticholinergic patients have dilated pupils. Classically, heat stroke patients have constricted pupils. So if you're Pupils are big and wide like dinner plates. You want to think about things like sympathomimetics and anticholinergics. If they're constricted, more likely heat stroke. Again, neuroleptic malignant syndrome is going to be antipsychotics typically, um, Haldol, Spiridol, and those patients will often be rigid as well. We talked about serotonin syndrome, talked about malignant hyperthermia already. And again, in malignant hyperthermia, oftentimes we're looking at over 45 degrees Celsius. And classically anesthetic agents. So most of the time that's going to happen in the hospital. But, you know, with the prevalence of outpatient surgery centers, there's a pretty high likelihood we could get some calls um, on those folks as well. So how are we going to treat these patients? So we've talked about how to diagnose them. We talked about how to rule out the other similar diagnoses to heat stroke. How do we treat them? And really the key is going to be cooling, IV fluids and airway management. There's really no role for Tylenol and antipyretics in heat stroke because this is not an issue of hypothalamic temperature dysregulation like in infection in classic fever. This is purely overheating with impaired cooling. So what are our cooling options? Four ways we can really cool people. We can cool by conduction, which is increasing our temperature gradient, evaporative cooling, increasing the water vapor pressure, convection, increasing airflow, and radiation. And that's going to be basically removing the clothes how do we convection increasing airflow is pretty straightforward? Fans, evaporative cooling, increasing the water vapor pressure, spraying the patient with, with room temperature water. But really our most, our go-to and our most effective is conduction. And conduction's gonna involve increasing the temperature gradient. So you you know, if you're 104 degrees Fahrenheit and it's 95 degrees outside, your gradient's only nine degrees. If you're 104 degrees and I put you in an ice bath that's 40 degrees, then your gradient's 104 to 40. So classically for exertional heat stroke, induction is the way to go. And if you've ever been to any ultra-endurance events, they'll always have cooling baths at the finish line. And this is why. It's preferred for exertional heat stroke. Now, if you think about the elderly patient that we pick up at the nursing home that's altered with a temp of 105, that's on a diuretic, that patient has been vomiting with diarrhea for the past two days and poor PO intake, not going to be a great ideal situation to put somebody in an ice bath. Um, So again, conduction ice bath is going to be more typically used in exertional heat stroke. How are we going to approach these folks from an EMS standpoint? If we're not at the Ironman, we don't have a a medical tent, we're not going to roll up with with an ice tub. So what are some of the things that we can do? We can give cold fluids. We can pack the groin, pack the axilla with ice packs. Um, again, these are going to be simple things, but the quicker we can cool these patients, the the better. And that's really, that's really the key in these patients because the faster they're cooled, the better off they're going to do. And if this is not recognized early, heat stroke has an 80% mortality. And let's not forget especially in these elderly folks, heat stroke and sepsis can occur together. Sometimes it's going to be impossible to tell, right? You're going to have somebody with foul smelling urine that's from the, from the nursing home that's 104 and altered. Could it be a heat stroke? Sure. But could they be 100% uh, sepsis, septic shock? Absolutely. So in that situation, we really want to, we want to tackle both. And from the standpoint of the pre-hospital setting, early IV access, plenty of IV access, fluids, and cooling the best we can. And sometimes that's gonna to have to be sorted out in the emergency department and even further in the, in the hospital in the ICU. So let's wrap it up here with a little uh, hit the high points. Again, heat stroke's deadly if it's not recognized early, not treated early. So keep this on your differential, especially in the hot summer months here in Texas. Remember there's two main flavors, two main types, and that's gonna be your classic heat stroke, elderly, chronically ill, multiple meds, and it can't cool themselves versus the exertional heat stroke, who can cool just fine, but they've overwhelmed their cooling mechanisms based on exercise or extreme heat that they're exposed to. The key for heat stroke, period, when we come to diagnosing it, is with a hard stop, you have to have altered mental status. So if the patient is not altered, you can take heat stroke off your list. Remember, then, a heat stroke, Tylenol is not useful. It's not hypothalamic dysfunction. It's a lack of cooling or excess heating, one or the other, or both. Get a core temp. These folks are often vasoconstricted. They've clamped down as much as they can to try to cool themselves. So if you get a temporal temp or even an oral temp, it can be significantly inaccurate. So make sure we're getting core temps if we're concerned for heat stroke. If it's exertional heat stroke and you have it available, if you're at an ultramarathon or an Ironman type event, get those patients in an ice bath as quickly as you can. But remember that ice bath in elderly exertional heat stroke patients has not been shown to be beneficial, potentially can even be harmful. And always consider a full differential diagnosis list when we're talking about heat stroke patients because there's multiple other conditions that can, that can mirror this and mimic it. Think about serotonin syndrome if they're rigid. Think about neuroleptic malignant syndrome if they're rigid. Uh, d- never leave sepsis off the list. Septic shock, that can, can really mirror heat stroke. And, uh, and remember that the treatment for the initial treatment, the pre-hospital treatment for sepsis and heat stroke is going to be fairly similar, right? We're going to get early access. We're going to get fluids going. We're going to cool the patient if we feel like heat stroke's on the list. And then once we get to the emergency department, get to the hospital, we have more time, the details can be sorted out. That wraps us up for today. If you have any questions or concerns, please send them our way. Thanks for joining us on another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast.